All right. Uh, we are going to be uh, in the Bible, so grab a Bible and jump over to Acts chapter 10. We're looking at the first 23 verses of Acts chapter 10 this morning. And uh, really, just to kind of give you a little bit of a framework, you know, when you're working through the, this historical narrative of, of the book of Acts, it's important not to get so micro-focused in these passages that you kind of lose the greater context of the book of Acts as a whole. And so I want to situate what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Uh, really what we're looking at in the story of Cornelius, which is Acts chapter 10, we're looking at what I would consider a seismic shift in the book of Acts. Uh, there's a lot of transition points in the book of Acts where we see uh, uh, movements geographically, biographically, uh, demographically, and this is one of those seismic shifts. And so what we're seeing is the gospel is spreading out to new regions beyond Jerusalem, which was primarily Jewish, into regions where there were both uh, Jews and uh, what would sort of be considered half-Jews, the Samaritans in, in the north uh, of, of Judea, and then also into cities where there's pretty prominent Gentile populations. So as we see the gospel spreading out to these new regions, we also see the gospel spreading out to, to different people groups, different types of people. And really the story of Cornelius is, is preparatory. It prepares the heart of, of Peter, a leader among the apostles, and the other apostles through his influence and through their own experiences. It prepares their hearts and their minds to wholeheartedly accept Gentiles into the growing church. And this was not a small thing, okay? There was significant tension between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. And uh, one of the major themes of today's passage that I really want to highlight, and you'll see it highlighted in the sermon handout as well, is, is the, the, the topic of prayerfulness. Why is prayerfulness so important? What is prayerfulness and why is it so important, especially in this context? And uh, as we're going to see, God responds to humble-hearted prayers. You know, we always ask ourselves these questions of, you know, if God knows what I'm thinking or if God already has his sovereign will decided, then how is my prayer going to work in that? And, and we really kind of delve into places where none of us are going to fully understand some of these things. But what we do see in today's passage is how God chooses to respond to humble hearted prayers. And that's a really important thing. We see it all throughout Scripture. So as we think about the unity that Christ is establishing his church, because remember, the church is his body. So he's establishing the church with an inherent unity in Christ as members one of another. And as he's establishing that unity between Jews and Gentiles in particular in the first century, uh, he's also doing that today. It's not so much Jews and Gentiles as it is just all sorts of different types of people of different ethnicities, of different languages, of different socioeconomic status, levels of education, nationalities, on and on and on. And that's still happening all throughout the church, all throughout the world today. So as we think about this, this establishment of unity, we have to understand that prayer is what prepares our hearts to receive and respond to God's directions. As God expands his church, it's the prayers of humble hearted Christians that prepare our hearts to not only receive God's directions, but also respond to them in obedience. So as Christians, this is just a basic principle. This is kind of the fallen condition that we face when we deal with sin. As Christians, when we lack prayerfulness, we lack usefulness to God. 
our usefulness is, is directly proportionate to our prayerfulness. And so without the one, we're not going to see the other and we're going to be frustrated. But turning to God in prayer prepares us to be useful instruments in, I love this phrase, it's from a book uh, that's really good called Instruments in the Hand of the Redeemer. It's, it's our humble-hearted prayer to God that prepares us to be used as useful instruments in the hand of our Redeemer. And God delights in choosing human vessels like you and I to accomplish his redemptive plans, to accomplish salvation in people's lives, to bring the, the message of God's salvation in Jesus Christ to people. He delights in using human people just like you and I, human vessels, okay? And, and we see in today's passage, and this is sort of the big idea for today, is that God connects, on the one hand, humble seekers, those who are humbly seeking him, with human speakers, these vessels that God chooses to bring that message of salvation to the humble seekers. He connects them with the human speakers. So then we ought to pray for humble hearts, both ours and others that are seeking God, but also pray for bold tongues, boldness in our speech. Uh, The story of Cornelius shows how God divinely directed a humble-hearted Roman centurion Gentile Uh, how he divinely directed this centurion to search for this man named Peter, who God was already preparing to speak to these Gentiles. And so you get to really see God at work in this passage, and it's really inspiring and refreshing. So let's take a closer look at how God works in bringing people to faith. How does God typically work in bringing people to faith? So first, let's look at the, the first side of our big idea, that God works with humble seekers. Uh, in verses 1 through 8, we see this in three parts. We see Cornelius's prayerfulness, which is evidence of his humility before God and his seeking after God. We see Cornelius's prayerfulness. We see God's directions. And then we see how Cornelius responds in, God, in Cornelius's obedience to those directions from God. So first, we see that Cornelius was a prayerful man. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, now there was a man in Caesarea or Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. This is like a special division of Roman troops there in that city. Uh, it goes on to describe, Luke does, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. He was a God-fearer and made many charitable contributions to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually, and prayed to God continually. So uh, Caesarea, or Caesarea, is the Roman capital in the Judean province. So obviously Jerusalem was the the Jewish capital in the Judean province of, of Judah, what the Romans called Judea which was the area around Jerusalem, but, but Caesarea was the, the Roman capital. That's where they had a, 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 mass, a, a massing of troops and, and uh, Gentile leaders. So again, that's where there was quite a few Gentiles and there was a lot of tension um, between the Jewish population and then these Gentiles. I mean, it's an oppressing empire, right? So the army of the empire that's oppressing your, your people is stationed here. So you can imagine there's going to be some tension, right? And as a Roman centurion, a centurion was in charge of 100 troops, and then they came under a commander who was in charge of six 
centurions, about 600 troops, and then all together, they brought a bunch of those commanders together to form a legion, which was about five to 6,000 troops, and that was kind of the, the basic unit of the Roman army. But as a Roman centurion, Cornelius would have been a really influential figure in this city. Now, there was others that he had to listen to. There's, there's commanders above him, but he would have had a lot of influence, especially as a Gentile. And he uses his influence to do what? He uses his influence to spiritually lead his family and direct them to the God of Israel and to bless God's people with charitable donations. You see how he chooses to use this this influence that God has given him? Uh, And then we also read, again, that he prayed continually. So he obviously wanted, he obviously desired a relationship with God, and his approach was was a humble-hearted approach. He, he recognized Israel as God's people, and so he humbled himself, even given his position in the Roman army as a centurion, he humbled himself to, to basically give alms and charitable donations to God's people Israel, and then to uh, pray to God continually. He wanted a relationship. All right, second, we see how God responds to Cornelius's prayers by giving him specific directions, and I love the specificity. Look at verses three through six. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And he looked at him intently and became terrified and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and charitable gifts have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa. And send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. Look at all the specificity. I love it. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. So here he gets some very specific directions. So the ninth hour of the day, and this is an important thing to see in the context of Acts. The ninth hour of the day, they started at sunup, which was around 6 a.m., and that, that's how they counted their hours. So the, the third hour would be our 9 a.m. The sixth hour would be our noon. The ninth hour would be our three o'clock in the afternoon. And so that, that three o'clock time period, that was the time in Jerusalem, however many miles away, of the uh, afternoon sacrifice. And so they were doing sacrifices at the time in Jerusalem at the temple that he was praying to God in Caesarea. And so here we see the language of sacrifice, a memorial offering, ascending up to God and, and being acceptable to God. So, so God, through the inspired author Luke, is revealing to us that God is seeing this Gentile centurion who's not even in Jerusalem at the temple as giving acceptable offerings to God that God responds to. I love that his prayers and his charitable donations. And even though these sacrifices have no connection to the temple building in Jerusalem, God still finds them acceptable. Guys, this is super important because all throughout the history of Israel, it has been a geographic focus on, uh, on Israel, the, 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 the land, and then it, within Israel, in Jerusalem, the city, and then within Jerusalem at the temple, and then you get these concentric circles of proximity to the presence of God. So you're always going towards Jerusalem and the temple to make sacrifices, etc. Well, now we're seeing it moving out from Jerusalem, and now it's no longer about a physical building. It's no longer about these specific types of sacrifices. Now you see prayers and charitable offerings given out of a humble heart and a desire to know God are being seen as, as acceptable sacrifices to God. This is all part of that that seismic shift in the book of Acts. 
which would have been so shocking for these Jewish Christians that made up the church in this day. So God responds to Cornelius' prayerful approach by giving him super detailed directions on next steps for how to have a relationship with God. Isn't that funny that... It's funny that he didn't just tell him right there, did he? He didn't just say, oh, yes, you're, you want a relationship with God? Well, here's, all, here's how to do that. And then share the gospel. The angel could have just shared the gospel and the vision. And said, Jesus came and he died for your sins on the cross. He rose again to new life. He ascended into heaven. God found his sacrifice on your behalf acceptable. And through faith in Jesus Christ, you too can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The angel could have said those words, but he did not. Instead, he gave him next steps for, what, for how to, to move towards God, how to have ultimate relationship with God. And he used a human vessel to do that. So the angel commands uh, Cornelius to send men to a specific city, to a specific house by the sea of a specific tanner named Simon, who happens to have a house guest with the same name, Simon, who also happens to go by Peter. And off they go. And notice he didn't send Cornelius. No, 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 no. He's going to work on Peter's heart to make sure that this is, this is very difficult. This is going to be difficult for Peter. So he's not saying, Cornelius, go with your men out to find him at his place. You need to send some men to invite him to come to your house. Okay? That's going to be important. So third, so we see that Cornelius is prayerful. We see that God responds by giving him these directions on how to have a relationship. And then third, we see how Cornelius obediently responds to God's directions. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, When the angel who spoke to him left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier from his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So this Roman centurion, he doesn't, he doesn't question these orders, right? He does what any good soldier would do who recognizes the authority of the one speaking to him, and he simply follows those orders in faith in the God of Israel, okay? So the story of Cornelius is a really great example of how God works with humble-hearted seekers whose hearts have been prepared to receive further revelation of God, who, who have received some light and, and, and are prepared to receive more light, more truth about God and how to have a relationship with Him. Um, as a teenager, and I've got plenty of people in the room right now that can attest to this, I was not a humble seeker of God, okay? Uh, I grew up, you know, in the church, but as my pastor in Fort Worth said, you can grow up in a garage and not be a car. I, I grew up in the church. I was not a Christian. Uh, and by the time I hit about 16, I'll probably get some nods from my mom and dad here, not to mention my brother. Um, but at about 16, I walked away from the church. Um, I replaced early Sunday mornings in dress slacks. I hate that word, slacks. You know what I'm talking about, slacks with the pleats and the, ah. So I, I replaced Sunday, early Sunday mornings in dress slacks with late Saturday night concerts downtown and black goth rock band t-shirts, okay? And that was, that was my teens. And I can remember one time uh, a street preacher, I've told you all this before, some of y'all, but a street preacher uh, who spent a lot of time down on 6th Street and down at the University of Texas campus, he approached uh, my friends and I down on 6th Street one weekend, and uh, we had some friends in a band, and they were playing a show at Steamboat. Uh, may it rest in peace. 
I, I think they brought it back, actually. I think it's on Riverside now. But Steamboat was this great music venue where our friends would play shows all the time. So we're standing outside Steamboat like a bunch of street punks, you know, who knows what, you know, uh, Look, trying to look tough, I guess. And this preacher comes up to us, and, and there's probably 10 of us, and there's like one, him and his sidekick, this young guy. And so he, he comes up, and he, he engages us, and he shares the gospel with us. And he asks us about, you know, our relationship with God and, and what we believed about God and some of these things. And ends up sharing the gospel with us. And I remember that uh, I rudely rejected his message. I just kind of I, I, I was really obstinate, and so I, and I thought I was a pretty smart kid. So I, I rejected his message, and I immediately pointed to like, well, there are, you know, undiscovered uh, people, tribes in the Amazon basin that have never seen an airplane, much less read a Bible, and you're telling me that if, if they haven't had a chance to hear about Jesus, and if they don't trust in Christ, they're going to go to hell forever? Like, that's, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Right. And I was just this arrogant, obstinate kid, and, uh, and I thought, you know, ooh, I got him, you know. Um, I didn't care about those unreached people in the Amazon basin. I, I only cared about myself, but I used that as an opportunity to kind of try and shoot down his, his gospel proclamation. Um, what I really cared about, what really concerned me, was the inconvenience of waking up on Sunday mornings and putting on slacks and topsiders. <laughs> I mean, that's what I had a problem with. It wasn't the doctrine of hell. It was, it was slacks, you know. And so, you know, I, I was just an obstinate, arrogant kid. But God spent the next 10 years. I mean, I was probably about 14 when that happened. And for the next 10 years, God went to work on my heart, softening my heart and, and, and really opening my mind to better understand God's truth, um, such that when I was 23, I trusted Christ um, about 10 years later. Um, and, and the point there is that God works with humble seekers, but he's also at work bringing us and others to the point of humbly seeking God. He's doing both and. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I had people praying for me, um, my parents, others in our family, friends, uh, all throughout my adolescence, because it was kind of rocky at times. Um, and I thank God that they were praying for me. I thank God that we had uh, people praying for us, even when we didn't know it. And I know I had that. Um, and God worked through those prayers to really, I, I don't know of another way to say it than to say just to soften my heart to the things of God uh, and to make me want to seek him above all else. And he brought me to so many dead ends in life where I was seeking satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment and identity and all these things, right? And just kept hitting these dead ends until finally, some 10 years later, uh, I was finally, you know, tenderized enough to, to receive the gospel and believe in Christ. So uh, really the application for this part of the passage is let's pray for people in our lives who haven't yet become humble seekers. We all know people who are still just driving into those brick walls of life at 90 miles per hour, thinking they're going to break through and find that satisfaction, find that purpose, find that fulfillment, find life eternal somehow other than in Christ. Um, and let's just pray that God would, would humble them to humbly seek their creator, to humbly seek God. And for those that have become humble seekers, let's pray that God would bring them the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, even if that would require a mission trip down to the Amazon basin. Let's pray for that. And that brings us to our second main point for today. God works through human speakers, 
human vessels to reach these humble seekers. In the last part of our passage, we again see God using this three-part process to prepare Peter to preach the gospel to Gentiles. Because again, this was a very shocking uh, set of directions, as you'll see. So, this three-part process. First, we see that Peter was already a prayerful man. He was already humble before God in the sense that he was prayerfully seeking God's will. Look at verse 9. It says, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So remember, that's about noon to pray. And noon wasn't a typical prayer time. You know, the typical prayer times in Jerusalem were nine o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, so noon, he just felt compelled to go up and pray right around midday. And uh, I mean, think about what Peter had just been through. I'd be praying as well. You know, he had he had uh, laid hands on a bunch of Samaritans who were hated by the Jews, who had come to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they baptized a bunch of Samaritans. While he's doing that, he rebukes a wizard, a sorcerer, you know, this guy Simon, the magician. And then from there, he goes on to heal a paralyzed man who had been bedridden for eight years. And then right on the heels of that, he raised a deceased widow from the dead and restored her to her fellowship, to her community there. And now he's just hanging out at the Tanner's house. I can imagine his prayers that he feels compelled to pray are like, okay, God, what next? I mean, that's what I would be praying, right? What next? And, uh, and so he prays. And second, we see how God responds to Peter's prayers by giving him specific directions. Look at verses 10 through 20. It says, but Peter became hungry and he wanted to eat. So again, this is midday. He's hungry. God uses this. But while they were making preparations, they were making lunch for him downstairs. He fell into a trance. This is just another word for vision. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, uh, lowered by four corners to the ground. And on it were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the sky. And a voice came to him. This voice from heaven comes to Peter and says, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. Peter always gets stuff three times, you know, from the Lord. So this happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So according to really, there's several places that reference this in the Old Testament and the law of Moses, but specifically Leviticus chapter 20 verses 24 to 26 talks about food laws and it talks about one of the purposes of food laws. You know, why weren't they allowed to eat uh, pigs or certain types of birds or certain types of, you know, shellfish and things like this. One of the purposes of those laws was to create a distinction, a separation between God's people, Israel, his holy set apart, consecrated people and the, and the surrounding nations. And so Peter's vision shows these specific kinds of animals that were labeled unclean according to the law of Moses. These specific types that are referenced in Leviticus and elsewhere. And Peter is extremely emphatic. He uses like two different negative statements put together 
to emphasize his refusal, his absolute refusal to eat these unclean animals. But the voice from heaven is, in, in, in the Greek it shows itself, but the voice is equally emphatic that this is what he needs to do, right? And, and that he needs to set aside those former distinctions between Jew and Gentile, Jew and the surrounding uh, nations. Okay, let's go to 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might mean, behold, so he's scratching his head about this thing. And then while he's scratching his head about what the meaning of this vision could be, it says, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius had asked directions to Simon's house and they appeared at the gate and calling out. They were asking whether Simon, no, not that Simon, Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings. That means without hesitation, without trying to figure this thing out. Just go, I'm sending you. Because what does he say, the Spirit? For I have sent them myself. This is not some random happenstance. I sent these men. I want you to go without any hesitation. And I love how God orchestrates everything in this passage. I mean, think about it. There's, there's uh, angels in visions. There's uh, voices from heaven. There's uh, the Spirit speaking directly to Peter. But in all of this, God is orchestrating everything that's going on in this passage. Even as Peter is getting directions about interacting with the Gentiles, the Gentiles had already set out to go find Peter. Such that as soon as the vision was done, they're knocking on the door downstairs. God had these Gentiles there right at the right moment. In, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about this. We're going to talk more about the Jewish view of Gentiles because it's, it's lost on us. And I'm the same way, guys. Like a lot of these cultural uh, aspects of first century Judaism and the, the early church are lost on us. But Jew and Gentile was like oil and water, okay? And we'll talk about that more. Um, but God knows that Peter is going to be really hesitant to engage with these Gentiles, which is the whole point of the vision about the unclean animals. So he reassures him that this is all happening according to God's will. And folks, that's the best reassurance in period, is to know that it's happening according to God's will. Okay, so we know Peter's prayerful. Peter also gets specific directions from God. Third, we see how Peter obediently responds to God's directions. Look at our last three verses. Starting in verse 21, it says, Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. Now on the next day, he got ready and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So God's preparation of Peter was already paying off as, as he invites these Gentile travelers and shows them hospitality and invites them inside the house for lodging, which probably would have included a meal and table fellowship. Between Jews and Gentiles, big deal, okay? And this was a step in the direction of what Paul refers to as the taking down of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile in the church. And that's Paul's going to really articulate this theology 
uh, of what God's doing in the church. But he's taking down the dividing wall. And this was a step in that direction between Jew and Gentile so that the church could be united. Because what would happen if there wasn't unity in the church and Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles started coming into the church? What would they do? Exactly what all of us tend to do. They would go off and have a Samaritan church and a Gentile church and a Jewish church. Right. But that's not how he's doing this thing. Okay. He wants them to be united. So, again, God works through humble speakers which is why he prepares Peter and then sends him to preach the gospel instead of just doing it himself with a vision from heaven. Okay. Uh, On Friday, I was over at Andrew and Jess's house, um, my brother and sister-in-law, and and they showed me this really cool piece of art. I I had to work this into the sermon because it's so good. But they have this piece of art that they're going to hang up and they're sort of debating whether they want to put it on the wall in the bedroom or out front. And the idea of putting it out front, like in the living room, is because it's a conversation starter. And I want to tell you the conversation that it would start. And, uh, and I think it makes perfect sense given the context of our passage. But they want to hang it up as a testament to God's goodness and God's provision in their lives, in their marriage, etc. Uh, what happened is my, after they got married, and y'all can correct me here if I'm wrong, but uh, fairly shortly thereafter, Andrew, they lived in Dallas by uh, Deep Ellum. And so there was an artist community and Andrew commissioned this piece of artwork with a local artist who was a Christian to develop this artwork to kind of enshrine their wedding vows. So it could be something that they could you know, cherish and keep that would reflect the, the vows that they had taken in marriage. And so he commissions this and then the artist spends something like 40 hours creating this incredible piece of art. Uh, it's really neat. And if you go over there, ask them about it and they'll show it to you. But as this Christian artist is preparing this, this work of art, he is praying and he is wrestling with God. And do you know what he's wrestling with God about? You know what God's putting on his heart? Give it to him free of charge. Just don't even charge it for it. Just give it to him. I mean, he could have made good money on this. It was a full work week worth of work on this piece of art. And so he's wrestling and he's praying. And basically, uh, he feels like God might be nudging him to give them this piece of art, not just to remind them of their wedding vows, but to be a constant symbolic reminder of God's goodness and provision in their marriage forevermore. And so uh, long story short, he gives it to them free of charge. And that piece of art has literally gone around the world with them when they were in Alain, in the UAE, and other places. And, uh, and it continues to symbolically speak of God's goodness and provision. It reminds them of his faithfulness to provide whatever they need for, to do to accomplish whatever God is calling them to accomplish. Can I say that again? Because it's true for you as well. Whatever God calls you to do, whatever God calls you to accomplish in life, he will provide whatever you need to do it. I'm not saying he's going to buy you a Lamborghini. I'm saying that if he calls you to do something and it seems risky and crazy and whatever it is, if it's his will, he will provide whatever you need to do it, no matter how miraculous that provision would look. Okay, and that's what it's that piece of art is meant to them. So God, think about this. He could have just kept coming back to to Andrew and Jess over the next 15 years with dreams and visions, reminding them of his goodness and his provision, right? He could have done that directly. But what did he do? He used this this human vessel, this artist in Deep Ellum, this Christian artist who is a humble-hearted man, who is prayerful. He used him to be the vessel through which he reminded them of his own provision for their life and marriage. And I think that's awesome. 
Um, even though God can do anything, he sovereignly chooses to work through human instruments just like you and I. And if you're a follower of Christ, he wants to absolutely work through you as an instrument in the hands of our Redeemer. So how can we prepare ourselves for usefulness? And the answer is simple. We pray just like Peter did, just like Cornelius did, just like every useful Christian man or woman or child has done throughout the last 2,000 years of church history. How do we prepare ourselves to be useful to God? We pray with humble hearts, seeking his will. So how might God want to see you and use you to share the gospel with someone in your sphere of influence? Think about that. That's our application for this. How might God want to use you to share the glorious gospel of his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ? Who needs to hear that from human lips? Who needs to hear that from your lips and also see the evidence of the truth of the gospel lived out in your life, even as you share the message of the gospel from your own lips? Pray about that. Think about that. We all have those people in our life. So I'd like to end with a quote about prayer from a book that I'm reading right now. I'm reading a lot about spiritual disciplines right now. And and Dallas Willard wrote this book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And it's on the sermon handout. You can read it with me. But basically, the author discusses prayer as a discipline. Because we all, when we think of spiritual disciplines, we think of fasting and meditation and prayer and, and solitude and silence and some of these things. So prayer we think of as a discipline. But he kind of, he, he, he reveals here that it's much more than that. And I agree with him. He says this. It would, of course, be a rather low-voltage spiritual life. I like that. It would, of course, be a rather low-voltage spiritual life in which prayer was chiefly undertaken as a discipline rather than as a way of co-laboring with God to accomplish good things and to advance his kingdom purposes. Do you see the, the point there? Prayer is not just a discipline like bench pressing or something. Prayer is a way for us to, to come alongside God in his plans and purposes, in his kingdom purposes to accomplish his will. And that's the way we partner with him is through prayer. And in today's passage, Peter, Peter wasn't going up on a rooftop to pray simply as a discipline. Well, I feel kind of spiritually weak right now. I need to go up and pray like, man, I need to go bench press something like it wasn't it wasn't simply a discipline for him in light of all that had happened in his life and ministry i'm sure he was going up to pray as i said earlier to ask god humbly and prayerfully what next lord you know we've seen all these people come to faith in samaria and joppa and and all these different places what next and even as he's praying that prayer god had already begun answering it because he had already begun directing these gentiles to the very place where he was praying And again, God connects humble seekers with human speakers of the gospel. So let's pray for humble hearts, both for ourselves as the would-be instruments of God and for the people that would would be the would-be humble seekers. Let's pray for humble hearts, but let's also pray for bold tongues so that we too can all become co-laborers with God to accomplish these good things and to advance his kingdom purposes on this earth in this life. Next week, we're going to see what happens when Peter finally gets there and meets Cornelius face to face. And uh, that's going to be the next chapter in our story of Cornelius. So let's pray together for those very things we just discussed. Would you bow your heads with me?